0: head to airbnb.com slash host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You
1: do? Yeah, <laughs> did you hear about
0: that?
2: I didn't find the one, I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In the sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on one hand, On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled.
0: I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast.
1: Bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders,
0: and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers, and seekers. Here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change
1: the way we see the world. Here we go. My guest today is Edwina Von Gall. Edwina is an incredible landscape designer based in East Hampton, New York. She is also the founder of the Perfect Earth Project, a nonprofit organization dedicated to raising the consciousness around toxin-free lawns and landscapes. We had a fascinating conversation about the environmental impact of our landscape designs and what we can do to take care of the ecosystems that we often overlook in our own backyard. Edwina explains that the best garden is one that is given permission to grow and age gracefully, which I find is a beautiful metaphor for life. Let's get to my chat with Edwina. So will you take me back to... Your love of horticulture and plants and and how it started, was it a hobby that you then started to parlay into something more serious?
2: Well, I think it started when I was born in a way, because my grandmother was very into gardening and she had a a big garden. And then my mom was president of the local garden club and my dad grew vegetables and I did time in the garden, you know, that was just expected of you then. And now it's amazing to me how valuable that was because once I handed a client a pack of sunflower seeds because we just put the garden in for her. We did a vegetable garden as part of her main garden. So I handed her a pack of sunflower seeds and I said, I saved this for you to plant yourself with your kids. And she looked at it with horror. And she said, no, no, I have no idea how to plant a seed. Like and that, it just never occurred to me that someone would not know how to plant seed.
1: It's a little bit intimidating, right? So many of us in America and across the world have are so far removed from the process of cultivating our own food or our own plants. I mean, I remember in, in maybe the second grade doing the art, you know, the science project where you're sprouting, you know, a tomato plant or something like that, but. It is intimidating. I mean, we've gotten really far removed from that. And do you know when that started to happen
2: in our culture? Sort of incrementally, but I think that it probably started post-Second World War as people's lives became more consumed by things other than home. But then it came back to home because people are consumed by their homes, but it's not quite the same way and yeah and, and so it became more and more about about product I think over time and that's really what replaced the garden and as fewer and fewer people did their own gardening so just like kids don't do chores anymore it's all tied together with that people have become increasingly distant I think part of it too is the tools that we have been given that are increasingly sophisticated, so that both the mechanical and chemical tools at our disposal to do these jobs for us, they distance us as well. And, you know, after DDT was banned, everybody thought, oh, well, this new stuff is safe. And of course, we're coming to find it's not. But still, we depend on them. To, to keep us at a distance because nature's becoming more and more scary for people as they distance themselves. So it's sort of this feedback loop of the farther I am from it, the less I understand it, the more it scares at me, the more I'll distance myself from it.
1: One of the things that intrigues me so much about you is you have done some incredibly famous gardens. You've worked with Frank Gehry and Annabelle Seldorf and Calvin Klein's and all these fabulous people because aesthetically i imagine they're responding to your beautiful designs and you actually see things you know from my point of view anyway quite differently right like your ideal execution of a garden is not sort of this american super tidy green lawn and so there's been this beautiful convergence that you've accomplished of being this incredibly chic sought after landscape expert but then you're making this incredible movement back to planting native plants, natural plants, cultivating the species coming back. So I would love to hear about how you approach a project. What are the pillars that you are assessing and then how do you begin the design process?
2: well it's it's always evolving, which is fun but for me, part of what makes a garden maybe speak to people in a way that I can do that, I can I can bring nature into the conversation, is that, yeah, it's a conversation. And once again, it's like going back to that word product. It is not a product. It is a process. I, I do not deliver a done landscape because that would mean it would have to be stuck like that forever. And there's a, as Isaac Mizrahi says, oh. You mean like a facelift that like the older you get and the the, the more you're trying to look the same and the weirder it gets because you're not letting this thing age gracefully. You know, a landscape should be given permission to age and to grow. I mean, we'll never see it beyond its infancy anyway. But so many landscapes, people expect their landscape to look exactly the same every time they step on the property. And that's why they can't tolerate a leaf or a blade of grass or anything that because the landscape is designed for that kind of static. And my landscapes are designed to never be the same. They're just never the same, <laughs> you know, the, the, the light changes. So like light is such an important part of landscape. So, I, and I think that that's kind of where that extra conversation comes in that, that the artists and architects that I've worked with respond to because Subtext, you know, and the garden is talking. And I see it like so. You get a project, and a project is always started because of an architectural moment, right? And very few people wake up and say, I think I'll just completely like do a landscape and I'll hire somebody to come and do it. No, they're doing a <laughs> renovation or they bought a new house and they're building a house. And so I get come in and there's a team involved. But generally, that means there's an architect. And there's a place, like you asked me like that, like the place, the place is super important. So architects are not known for being without ego and nature is an extremely strong <laughs> force. So my job is to basically disappear between those because my feeling is that if you bring another voice, another strong like voice into this conversation, that garden can never feel peaceful because it's caught between the architecture and the place and it's kind of stuck there and it's, I just need to like step out of it and let the architecture and the place come together over this piece of land. So when you're looking out from the house, The windows and the views frame what you're seeing, but it goes right into the background of what you're seeing. And when you look back at the house, it works in the reverse, that it works in the context of the house or the building that you're working on. So it's a nice conversation one can always have with the architects and the other people on the site. But back to that first question about like, was, was I ever a traditional gardener and designer. Absolutely. And there was a time, you know, when every new introduction from England and the, the, the Gertrude Jekyll border, that was it, you know, and <laughs> I had to have it. And the harder to grow it, the better. And the more unhappy it was in your, in your garden, the more you could say, I did it. And, you know, now I just want plants that want to be there and don't need me. And I don't want to saddle my clients because we all ended up moving away from that English gardening style because we realized that that was like having a three-year-old outside your door forever. It like, was <laughs> just a never-ending need. That's not the way to garden, you know? So what my goal is now and, and in terms of what we're teaching and how we're trying to um, have this kind of a dialogue with the landscape design world and clients is is gardens that are designed for independence. Hmm. because, And I like to ask, like, when you design a garden, are you thinking about how many different trades and how many different actions are going to be required? How many different contracts is this client going to need to sign in order to keep this garden looking like you are intending
1: what is the carbon count in maintaining this natural space right exactly so
2: actually that's something we're working on now is trying to calculate what is the environmental cost of of each component of garden management and how can you reach neutral how can you reach what is carbon neutral because if you take your grass clippings and bag them and remove them from the property they go to the landfill where they produce methane. And methane is by umpteen times a more powerful greenhouse gas than than carbon. And people are doing that 20% of our landfills are what's classified as landscape waste, which isn't waste because it's the food your landscape made for itself. And if the lawn is properly mowed at the proper time, not when it's wet, and it's properly managed so it's it's a living system grass clippings disappear within a very short period of time and they go back into the lawn and they feed the lawn and if there are places where your clients say oh but i don't want grass clippings on my feet then you say well where will you be walking within the few hours after we mow and we'll we'll, we'll rake those away. you know that you won't see them so there are all these processes that you can design into the process. If you're putting trees in that you know are gonna outgrow a space and will need to be clipped, or if you're putting in shrubs that are intended to stay exactly as the size they were installed or in a shape, that's, that's a constant care component. And so we're trying to look at how can gardens still meet the aesthetic Although we are trying to change the aesthetic of it. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, how can gardens still be something that delights people, but also are highly ecosystem serviceable?
1: Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners.
0: This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation.
1: So what are we supposed to do with these lawns then? Do we need to change the paradigm of what a backyard looks like? Give me kind of the basics. What are the Edwina rules?
2: Okay, so in terms of lawn, I I am not anti-lawn at all. Like, where are you going to play? But it's how much lawn and what are you putting on it? Because you do not want to be playing on a lawn that's toxic. And you you don't have to. You can have just a wonderful place-based lawn if you're working with someone who knows how to do it and they, and they do it right.
1: Are most lawns toxic? So take a regular American lawn. Like in your mind, how should we be caring for the lawn? Should we be planting wild grasses? What is the most optimal way to treat a lawn?
2: Well, there are lots of options. And, but first of all, we just say, how much lawn do you actually use? like think about the amount of your lawn that you actually play on and walk on and use. And that's the size of your lawn. So it's more like area rug as opposed to wall to wall. You wanna look into yourself and say, well, what, what am I, why do I have this much lawn? And, and oftentimes, you know, this is like self-examination, lawn is <laughs> lawn therapy, you know, <laughs> am I doing this to impress people? Because I can, you know, and and so forth. And then the other thing is like, and so that it's the size of the lawn and what's going on it. So are you putting chemicals on your lawn because you saw a dandelion there? That's a cycle of dependency because if you kill dandelions, it opens up space for more weed seeds to come in. So the, the, the goal is that you have a minimum amount of lawn, that you mow it high. We say mow to four, cut to three inches taller lawn is like a more relaxed hairstyle. If you're wearing a buzz cut, your head's going to get scorched. Yeah. You know, and that's what happens to your soil. Ah, okay. Because when you cut grass really short, that's when it stands up just perfectly straight up like that, you know, so that's your buzz cut look like it's standing straight up. And that started really after after the second world war, when the military thing was the, the military saved us, you know, from being lost to the enemy and everything military was felt good, felt safe, protected. So everybody went for things that were very regimented and very uniform. And it was the same time that all those chemicals became available because many of them were war surplus, but letting it grow longer, it gets a little floppier. It's more like casual today. Like everything else has gone that direction. I'm not sure why lawns can't agree. And and because it's that, first of all, you have more leaf surface, which means more photosynthetic surface, which means more energy going into the roots. All right. So it's healthier. It also protects the crown. Each leaf, each grass is a little plant. You know, There's thousands and thousands of little plants out there. And if, if their crown is exposed to the sun or exposed more, a longer blade protects it. It's like a little, you know, it also shades the soil. So it doesn't dry out as quickly. And it also protects it from weed seeds coming in. So if you have a lot of weeds in your lawn, it means not so much that the weeds are bad, it means your lawn isn't as as healthy as it could be. And the more you stress your lawn by cutting it short and opening it to sun and reducing leaf surface, the more likely it will be to succumb to not only weed infestation, but fungus and bacterial diseases. And then when you add to that the way people water, which is the third component, mm-hmm. uh, where you leave your grass clippings, <laughs> and low high and water properly, which means water seldom and water deep. Most people, if they have an irrigation system, the irrigation person comes in the spring, turns it on, sets it for every other day, twenty minutes a day, every each, day, and leaves. And that's the same for the entire time it's on and. There's nothing else that's the same during that time. You know, there's sun, there's shade, there's heat, there's rain. And none of that is taken into account. And, and basically what it does is it, it wets the top of the soil, but it doesn't get down deep. And so what's happening is that top section, the, the crowns never dry out. So, and that's what people think is good. Like, like oh, my grass will be thirsty. But compare it instead to spending your entire summer in wet socks. Your feet are going to be nasty. The grass needs to dry out. But what happens is that frequent short-term watering thats all the water is like in this much of the soil. So the roots never go down here because that part gets dry. So then you have short roots. And so if you do stop watering, yeah, your grass dries out because it only has what, you know, it's only this much to draw on. So basically you don't water unless you absolutely have to, which means generally in the Northeast, not starting until like mid June, late June, when it gets really hot. And unless you have a really, really dry season, you probably shouldn't need to water more than once a week. And when you water, you water really deep.
1: So what does that mean? How long do you turn the sprinklers on?
2: Well, that depends, of course, on your soil and your slopes and your everything, but generally about an hour. And if you have a big slope in the grass and it's all running off, then you might want to split it into two, two days or two moments, like a half an hour, let it soak in and then do another half hour. And my favorite tool is, <laughs> is, my, is my moisture gauge. And it's, I have this thing, this like little box on a long probe and you stick it in the ground, and it tells you wet or dry.
1: It does make sense when you think about, especially I'm just thinking about where you are, where we have a house out on Long Island. You think about these massive summer storms that roll through, and it rains and rains and rains, and then it's dry for weeks at a time. And That's in nature. That's how nature waters everything, right? It's not 20 minutes a day, every day. I mean, that's probably true for somewhere like Hawaii, right? Where there it rains for 20 Mm -hmm. minutes a day, but completely different set of plants and vegetables. Yes.
2: Yes. You put your finger on it. That's exactly what we say to people. Think like nature, replicate nature as an ideal. So nature doesn't tend to deliver the right amount of water once a week. So that's, (laughs) That, so that's where you come in yeah mm-hmm. because grass is not really a natural system it's generally somewhat of a, you know a monoculture and you are stressing it with mowing and so other people say well i don't i don't water at all that's an option but it will stress your lawn and when you stress it it will take a while to recover so i do recommend that judicious watering is necessary to have a lawn you love so
1: for those of us trying to imagine, okay, we use a, as much lawn as an area rug, then what's, if there's more lawn left, what what happens there?
2: One more thing about lawns. Okay. you got to learn to love clover.
1: <laughs> I then,
2: do love clover. Yeah, and my grandson said, oh, hey, look, the word love is in the middle of the word clover. Oh. <laughs> and he's right. He's so, right. Yeah. Just because clover is nitrogen fixing, and it has a wonderful symbiotic relationship with turf grasses. And so, and it's very heat tolerant, and turf grasses are are naturally not. So it it makes your lawn look greener. That's what
1: you're supposed to have, right? A mix. It's not only these, just these shoots of lawn grass, right? We're supposed to have a mix.
2: That's the classic English lawn. And people always think that they're like English lawn is already a lawn, but English lawn is actually, if you look at it closely, it's it's a very complex mixture of little wildflowers and grasses and things. And people are you know appalled to think that that would be a lawn, but we're hoping that it catches on a bit, mm-hmm. you know, but at least clover, it would be a nice thing too. And and really our, our concern with clover is really, it was, it's marketing. When they introduced the chemicals that kill broadleaves, which was to kill the dandelions because dandelions are for some reason vilified. They actually do good things for lawns, but I won't try to change people that dramatically. (laughs) (laughs) But when they introduced the broadleaf killer chemicals, they realized it was killing clover and clover had always been included in grass seed mixes because it does make a healthier, denser, greener lawn. And then they said oh well we'll just make clover bad and then we can sell more fertilizer because clover provided the necessary nitrogen to lawns so there's that so okay so now you've decided to reduce your lawn and you've got some space well you fill it with native plants and you have a lot of options so that could be native grasses native ground covers and generally the the high functioning ecosystem garden has four layers. So you have the tree layer, and then you have a shrub layer, and then you have a herbaceous perennial plant layer, and then you have ground cover layer. And so if you wanna really get into the weeds, so to speak with it, that's what you do. you know you build that and then and that's where birds will be happy and butterflies will be happy and you keep some areas with more sun and some with less because most of the pollinator flowers like a lot of sun because they're meadow plants. And so that's where you could start. So I usually say since your lawn was probably sunny, but you could start taking away lawn in the areas where it never really was happy anyway. That's a good place to start because why keep forcing it to be something it just can't? And so then you have to look at that space for well, what would want to be here? It might be moss, or which, like, once you get into it. Um, it's not that easy <laughs> to grow. It's hard to get rid of and it's hard to grow. But there are a lot of wonderful native ground covers that are, are really beautiful mm-hmm. and do well under trees, do well mingled with roots. And, and this is
1: something that people can Google based on where they are, right? Mm-hmm. Just look up, you know, grass is native to me, et cetera.
2: Yes. And there's a couple of websites that have now come out that I recommend, which is one is the Audubon plant database. It's not super extensive, but it's really good because it's, it's zip code based. Great. It's beautiful. It tells you the birds that those plants will attract. And it really sticks with plants that are pretty much definitely going to grow for you. Right. And so that I really like it's, it doesn't get off into the r- rare or amazingly unique, but that's, just what the average person needs. And that's there. The other one is the Xerces Society, X-E-R-C-E-S. They're the insect people. They focus on what insects their plants will attract. So, you know, the bees and the butterflies and stuff. Those are my two, like, national, nationwide favorites go-to. The Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center in Texas has an amazing database where you can look up plants if you've heard the name of something mm. that you'd like to know more about it's just wildflower.org and pollinator pathways pollinator-pathways.org um, or you can google pollinator pathway northeast although they're getting to be quite national they they're starting to put up really great informational pdfs downloads a lot of information and so if you wanna create a pollinator garden, that's often the sort of, we call it the garden gateway drug, they're the starter. Once you put in a plant and you see the butterflies just flocking around it, it's hard to stop. Yeah. So but I like shrubs too.
1: You like, so are them. these the kind of steps, if, if someone wants to transition to an all natural yard maintenance, Is it identifying plants? Is it identifying, okay, this will be the watering schedule? How can people start to take steps to to do this regenerative kind of landscaping?
2: First of all, you can get to know your eco-region. So they used to be the USDA zone zone maps that told you where your hardiness, but now they're eco-regions. So you can then look up different things about these are the plants that actually evolved And the Audubon does that too. These are the plants that evolved in your area. So other than lawn, if you plant plants that are exactly right for your place, so even within those, you have to think about, well, is my soil all sand or is it all clay? That'll have some influence on what you plant. You really shouldn't have to water. You water stuff in when you plant it. If it's a big tree or a shrub, you, you probably should give it some supplemental water for the first year or two. But the idea is after that, it does not need you. You And then think of it,
1: it think of the cost savings.
2: I mean, my goodness. Yes. And see, that goes back to like how many different services did you hire to take care of your landscape last year? You know, and it's like another part of this tidiness thing. Because that's my other like big nemesis, ticks and tidiness. (laughs) Ticks
1: and tidiness.
2: (laughs) (laughs) They're they're killing me. Um, But because like people are, and, and it's this fear, it's this separation from nature thing that people have decided that, you know, they know what an interior looks like. They can totally relate to the interior of their home and they know how to talk to their cleaning staff. So they use the same language for their landscape. So like blow that, so blowers are like the, the outdoor equivalent of a vacuum. Yeah. It's just the only language they have for relating to their landscape staff. And so now our landscapes have become tidy. So they see a dead twig in a tree and they say, oh, take that out. But fact is that is an ecosystem. That's an endangered, it's a micro endangered ecosystem is deadwood that is actually in a tree or a shrub because there are insects that will only live there and it is a it is a bird feeder
1: so you assess a system that's there depending on climate location
2: soil wind yeah and then you pick the plants that you know are going to be happy there and so yeah your your garden may look the same as another one down the street, but they do anyway, the way they're designing them now. You know, <laughs> there's a row of hydrangeas, there's a couple of boxwoods, and and there's a crepe burble tree. And so wouldn't it be nicer if they were all the same, but instead they were some, you know, native viburnums that are covered with berries that the birds really love. And the plants that are native, they've evolved together. So they actually, in this amazing magic of nature, they deliver fruits that have the right amount of fat and sugar content balanced for the time of year that the birds need them. Amazing. Yeah. So going into the winter, the berries have more fat content, the ones that ripen then, because the birds need it to get through the winter. But in the spring, they tend to be more sugar and because they're, they're doing a lot of flying mm. and, and feeding. And that's where all the caterpillars are out. If you it just like amazes me that like if if people see caterpillars on a tree, they call the tree guy and they kill him, right? Because that caterpillar is eating my tree. But maybe the week before they hired someone to come and whack a third of the leaves off that tree. So like, wait a minute. You can't give those leaves to the caterpillar to raise enough little uh, chickadee babies to keep a stable chickadee population on your property. That chickadee needs maybe 20,000 caterpillars in a season. And so, and you're not gonna share a few leaves with them. I mean, you weren't gonna eat those leaves. So why not like, but great news, people are now getting it because they they're planting milkweed and when they see a monarch caterpillar on a milkweed everybody feels like they've really done it so i'm just suggesting that they could extend that generosity to a large population of caterpillars
1: much broader <laughs> we're inclusive of all caterpillars exactly so this isn't a- a good segue for me to ask you about your two-thirds for the birds campaign, which you were telling me about when I saw you last.
2: It is a good segue. Thank you.
1: <laughs> because you told me that the North American bird population has been declining dramatically. What is two-thirds for the birds? And, uh, and then what are your goals for it?
2: Two-thirds for the birds is about the bird decline, or it was inspired by the bird decline. Some news came out in 2019. 2017, about the fact that North America has lost a third of its bird population in the last, since the 70s. So that amounts to about 3 billion birds, and that's in overall populations. And the interesting thing about it is that actually it's not like the fragile bird populations or the, the rare and odd ones. It's the common everyday birds. And the, the two major drivers of the decline were determined to be loss of habitat and use of pesticides. And so where is that happening? That's happening where we live because we're taking over the places where our familiar common birds live and we're depriving them of habitat. So it's it's a pretty direct and we're, we're 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 removing, so our our landscapes have become food deserts basically, because not only are they cleaned and cleared and clipped, they're largely planted with plants that are sold as the ones that nothing will eat. So what does that tell you? And also, and then on top of that, they get sprayed a lot with pesticides. So there's still birds out there, but there are far fewer. And there's a there's a whole psychological process that we we reset our standards, so to speak, on a regular basis. So we think we're seeing the same amount of birds that we used to see, but actually we're not. That's where the research comes in handy. So at the same time I was reading this devastating news about the bird crash. Doug Tallamy, who is a incredible crusader for bird insect, populations he's an entomologist and is and wrote this seminal book on backyard habitat but he had a new book coming out so he let me read the manuscript and it was like like this giant joy (laughs) bolt hit me because he had been able to actually quantify what a Bird population friendly landscape contains. And that was 70% native plants and no pesticides. So then I could stop just being so vague and saying, well, native plants are good, you ought to have some, to being quite specific and setting goals for people. Yeah. So 70% is good, but I thought, well, It's sort of two-thirds, and two-thirds rhymes with birds. So that's even better. So if you have two-thirds native plants in your yard and you do not use pesticides, then you're contributing to the positive and you're aiding the return of the bird population. Mm. Less than that, unfortunately, you're contributing to the decline. And so that's, to me, a very big decision that everybody should be aware of. And I'm really raising the the, the initial challenge to those of us who are professionals that we would never even dream of designing another landscape that didn't meet that. Pretty simple criteria. How could you know that you were actually contributing to the loss of biodiversity? Because birds are really as, they're the indicator species. It's not just the birds, it's everything. So we started, they started two thirds of the birds and it's 234birds.org and it's a website and it's a movement it's completely non-commercial there is no donate button anywhere there are no petitions to sign Um, it's really from your heart and it was just a list you can sign up for a list and that means you've joined the community and you can look at other people who are in the community if they've chosen to share their email with you. You can talk to each other. You can hopefully find a landscape designer who was in your neighborhood who's also just decided to join the community. We have a massive toolbox. It's in homage to the Whole Earth catalog. It's called Access to Tools and it keeps growing. And basically, it's as simple as that. That we hope that people will contact each other in their communities and that they'll keep signing up so they can find each other and share resources. And they're always welcome to write to us if they have questions about it. But all of those websites and databases and everything, they're in the toolbox.
1: Mm. That is so fantastic. And I think it just it takes a little bit of a I don't know, a loosening of a paradigm around what your lawn is supposed to look like. and also swallowing the pill that planting plants that aren't native and then spraying them are actually really bad for the earth. And I don't think we think about that in that way, you know I, I mean, of course, if we're spraying weed killers, we know that's not great, but you know, we just think, oh hydrangeas are beautiful and all my neighbors have them. I don't know if that's native to Long Island or not.
2: Yeah. It's going to require a new kind of perception. Mm -hmm. I think of it as people say it looks, they can say it looks messy. I don't think it's messy at all. Nature is not really messy. Nature is highly complex. And the more you begin to read that complexity, the more you learn about it. I like to ask people if it's possible. Don't kill anything if you don't know its name. Mm. And so that changes everything. That includes weeds because if you create a space that is intended to be a haven for the native species, but you then weed them out because you didn't recognize that maybe a rare and endangered something happened to seed in and you didn't know what it was and you just, rip that I mean I'm sure I've done it <laughs> but it's an interesting new way. Rebecca McMackin at the who runs the horticulture at the Brooklyn Bridge Park, she's really pioneered this concept with her staff and it's 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 wonderfully inspirational. And I'm hoping that all of the landscapers that I work with and that everybody works with, we can start to train them in recognizing both the insects and the plants. That they're working with
1: do you feel like it's trending in that direction do you think people are becoming more aware and it's trending more positively
2: you know so like po- political trends and other trends uh, some of us are going one way and others are going the other way uh-huh. and, so, and I'd like to think though that those who want to come in this direction the the, the pro nature direction there's more and more enthusiasm and more commitment and more buy-in and a whole lot more available to to help them do it and that's what I'm doing through the perfect earth project and two-thirds for the birds is giving people the the tools they need to really make it and find it's joyful you know that's the other thing it's really it really makes you feel good you are doing an absolutely undeniable positive environmental act. And it doesn't cost you anything. And it's in your own backyard. What it takes more of is you, like paying attention, but it's actually not more because you're not pruning and clipping and fertilizing and and spraying and doing all that other stuff. You're, You're just engaging. You're getting to know what it is. You're looking at the complexity and you're seeing the order in it.
1: Mm. I got to get my shit together, Edwina.
2: Oh, good. It's, it's not time. over. Don't be overwhelmed. That's the one thing that I, you know, don't be overwhelmed. It's a process. You know, it's, it's forever. I will never know enough ever, ever. It's long. You yeah, know, It's, but it's, it's just that the smallest things reap big rewards.
1: Is there anything that is really dissonant to you in a garden? What are the things that really make you cringe?
2: I guess it's that whole thing of everything held in place. Like a garden that I can see has nowhere to grow. You know, it, it's, it's all clipped and it's all shaped. And you know that it, the only way that that garden, it, it just, it has no future without mm-hmm. suppression. It has to be suppressed. And the trouble is as it grows, as the wood gets denser, let's say on a shrub, the cuts you're making are deeper, deeper. Every cut is a wound. Mm. When you prune, that's a wound. So if you're really cutting all around, you're you're doing really multiple, multiple wounds. The cuts are getting deeper and deeper and deeper as that plant matures. And when I see those kind of cuts, when bad pruning just really hurts me.
1: <laughs> because you talk to the plants, don't you, Edwina? The plants they talk, talk to, to you.
2: They talk to me. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. they don't want to hear from me. <laughs> but they have a lot to tell. I have a lot to hear from them. Yeah. They I, do. And just think, how do they talk?
1: How do they talk
2: to you? I never thought before, you know, I always thought, no, you know. But then so many people have said to me through the years, well, how did you know that? And I, I have no answer. I don't know how I know it. And oh, it, it's just, but there, we all have different things like that, that we, you know, cause it's not like I hear voices, you know, <laughs> it's, not, it's, it's just like, I'm inclined, you know, I'm just inclined to feel it, like to sense it, to, 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 and it's a lot of years of observation a lot a lot of time yeah
1: it's so beautiful yeah. it's almost like poetry watching you stand in a garden and
2: oh thank you and gardens are like to me it's like they're like my they're a party and I because I know them all you know I'm there with my friends and we're and so whenever I go to a new place and I don't know the plants I I got to learn them because like, it's like, then I'm at this party and I don't know anybody there. And I feel so sorry for people whose gardens are, is they're strangers to them. You know, they, they, they're in this thing and no wonder they're afraid of them. No wonder they're, they, they fear letting them out of control because they, they don't know anything about them. Mm. And so it, as long as it never changes, they figure it's okay.
1: Are you, at your happiest when you're in nature in that way?
2: When I go someplace, I get out of the city as fast as I can.
1: <laughs> Thank you for tuning into my conversation with Edwina Van To learn more about her work, visit her websites at perfectearthproject.org and 234birds.org That's the number 234
0: birds.org.
1: Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow,
0: rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts.